morning again. Halloween is that season now where I just want to get through it. I don't know about you, but it's like, let's get past this craziness, but uh, it's uh, going to be a wild couple of days. I want to go back to what uh, Brandon said. Brandon and Alicia and I had a a meeting on Friday to talk about the financial situation, and um, we have a large amount of money in savings as a church, relatively large, and so I say that to encourage you that we're not turning the lights out on you next weekend. Uh, but it's just an interesting time, and, um, and you know the church has been through a challenging time the last couple of years, and we all know that. So this morning, what I want to do is actually encourage you. I'm going to give you a different message you might expect. I want to encourage you, and um, this was not how I planned to begin the message necessarily, but I'm going to do it. I just feel, quote-unquote, led to do it. That photo, anybody recognize where that was taken? Yes, where? Yeah, at Orchard Alliance in Briargate. And uh, in February of uh, 2020, I was there for, I think it was Kingdom Advisors. You know, we met at 7.30 in the morning, and I got this beautiful sunrise photo. It had snowed, obviously, and, uh, and I took that and, you know, loved that photo. Uh, the reason I'm sharing that with you is that two weeks after that, I went to Walmart twice in one day because we could tell that things were about to close down. And I promise I did not hoard toilet paper, but... <laughs> But those were some of the things I I bought because I knew it was about to get crazy, and not long after that, we all shut down. I think it was in March or whenever it was. So the other day, I ran across this photo, and I saw the timestamp on it, and I thought, you know, that was two weeks before that Walmart trip. And if we'd only known, and of course, you remember back then, it was like, we're going to do this for five days, you know, and kind of whatever it was with a curve. I don't remember. That was a long time. That was a lot of curves ago. And at the time, uh, what I was hearing in the ministry world was the expectation that it was about to get extremely tough for ministries, that people, you know, normally you'll have people that aren't happy, and then there were going to be an increase in the number of people that were not happy. There was going to be an increase in the number of people that fell away from the church and, you know, maybe watched online or maybe not, and financially and everything else. Well, it's been interesting what churches have found is that actually financially, they didn't necessarily do worse. It just depends but it still has been a rugged time in the ministry world, and we still see the aftermath of that. So I'm not going to fixate on the negative, but I want to I acknowledge the fact it's been a rough time for many reasons here at FRAC. But I want to take this in a direction you don't expect. There's one thing I've really seen here that I want to encourage you with. Um, I see God's hand upon you. And uh, we have a lot of phenomenal people in this body. We really do. And I think God has created a seedbed here, fertile soil for discipleship. Because we have a ton of people who know the word and are learning the word. We've been talking in Sunday school about how to make it come alive. And you've been learning how to kind of see some things that are there that you never thought about before. Uh, We have a ton of people who love the Lord. We have a body that is extremely friendly and it just blows me away, you know, you guys stay around for so long after the service and you greet visitors and you're loving to them. It's a very warm atmosphere. Well, anybody in ministry knows there's no perfect church. And if you tried to be a perfect church, first of all, you'd never make it. And secondly, you'd probably go in dysfunctional directions just to try to be perfect. So some of you are thinking, well, what's the but, Sid? What's the but here? You're saying nice things, but what's the but? There is no but. 
I love you guys. God loves you. You are a phenomenal body of believers. And I believe God has called you for such a time as this. I believe God has built a fertile soil, a framework, and I think the pastor who comes in is going to be blessed by you whenever that happens. And I think you have the ability to reach the community because I think you've got a stability that the world needs. And the world, for one thing, is torn apart, I really believe, by the father issue or the lack thereof. And I believe that God has created a mature body of people who can provide that for someone who's looking, can guide them through the scriptures, and help them to really get to know the Father God, which we all need to. I believe you're primed for discipleship. So rather than just saying, well, you know, we look at the bottom line every week, which we do, I mean, I do. I want to look ahead and say, why has God called you? Why has God called you for such a time as this? What does he have in mind? And I think it's fantastic. So I love you guys. I want you to know this is how you need to think of it. Now, this is not rocket science. If we went to Peterson Space Force Space, we'd find rocket science. This is not rocket science. God loves you. Love him back. Love one another. Love your family. Love the stranger in your midst, the person who comes through the door, no matter how many spikes they have on their body. And if you do that, it'll be just okay. It'll be just fine. God will have you where he wants you. So I want to encourage you today. Now today we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. We really are, I promise. So if you turn with me to Acts 17, I'm excited about this sermon because um, this sermon, um, to me, is going to highlight the cultures around us and kind of give us some thoughts about how we can reach them. And uh, as I move down through here, uh, I have titled it The Marketplace of Ideas because I really think that's an important message for us. And the more I've looked at it, the more I've decided, you know, there's so much here. I don't want to shortchange Paul's message to the people in Athens at the Areopagus because that's just so powerful. So I made an executive decision that I'm actually going to do this as a two-parter, that today we'll get through verse 21 or so, and then next week I'm going to pick up Paul's message. There's so much there to flesh out. It's just going to be so fun. But I'm excited about what we're going to get into today. I think you're going to really appreciate this. And if you don't, we'll give you your money back, I promise. You know, I'll refund your entrance fee. So in two weeks, we'll be talking about the network, the body of Christ. And then I just, FYI, I put this in, you haven't seen this, in December, uh, December 11th, Lord willing, I'm going to talk about the dauntless devotion of the disciples and apostles. And I'm excited about that because they tell us a lot about faithfulness to the Lord. Now, I will say it frack, there's one thing that really, really troubles me a lot, uh, it, it bothers me, and that is that somehow we've got gremlins in this building. Because I made this, and a gremlin looked at the blue and the orange, and all of a sudden I'm seeing this. <laughs> so, anyway, but that's going to be in December, which I can hardly believe is almost here. So we'll get into dauntless devotion. So today I'm going to take our message on Acts 17, and I actually thought about what we really want to talk about today is what I would call the middle space marketplace. The middle space marketplace God is providing relationships for you where you, when you leave the church building, you go out into the world, and God has created relationships there for you to run into. And obviously, we have a lot of different kind of people there, even in Colorado Springs. And we're going to see a similar thing in Acts chapter 17. And when I say marketplace, I call it a marketplace because it's the marketplace of ideas. First of all, in Acts 17, there is a literal marketplace, the Agora. But nowadays, people 
look at ideas, especially the spiritual world, like they're going to the mall, and we all know about window shopping. When you go to the mall, I hope you don't buy everything you see, or your credit card will be maxed out to the extreme. But that's the way we tend to treat spiritual things. It's like, eh, I'll consider that, whatever. But I'm window shopping. I'm window shopping. I'm not making a commitment. And we'll talk about that as we go along today. So last week, I believe it was, we talked about how Paul was on the second missionary journey. He left from Antioch. He went across through Asia Minor. He went through Turkey on the land. He went through, got to the other side, got to Troas, saw the Macedonian vision, a man from Macedonia come over. Paul took a boat over. Uh, to the coast, then he went up to Philippi, and we're in the middle of that journey now. We're going to find him in Greece, and he's going to move his way down to Athens. So I'm going to take the map here, the red box, and I'm going to expand it for you. And that's what you see. So that's where we're going to be today. He's going to be in Thessalonica, Berea. He's going to have to bypass Mount Olympus and then go down to Athens. And so today, if you'll turn me to Acts 17, if you're not already there, let's take a look at what we've got. So Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas and Thessalonica. Verse 1, let me read this paragraph and I'll come back to it a little bit. As often as we have seen in Acts, you will definitely notice today that timing is a major factor in this passage. So watch the timing. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Christ means anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. He is the anointed one. He is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one we've been waiting for, Israel. So you'll notice they, when they passed through, they came to Thessalonica, which was a capital of the region. It had a harbor there. It was a very strategic place as a commercial center. It was a hub on the water and on the land, so it was a, a very strategic location. And as always, he goes to the synagogue first to speak to the Jews. This also in the general area of uh, this region is where Philip the Great and Alexander the Great came from. And so it's that region that's got that historical legacy, the military legacy, etc. And the Romans had colonies there, so it was a pretty important area. And so Paul takes three Sabbath days to reason with them, which tells me that they allowed him to speak to them for three days. In other words, uh, that they let him speak and keep speaking. They invited him back. It technically does not say if it's three in a row, we don't know, but he did that, and the word reasoned is a legal term here that means he made his case. He made the case to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, and his logic here, if you will, you know, in logic they call it a syllogism, basically, the content of the preaching is this, that Messiah would suffer and be raised, this happened to Jesus, Therefore, he is your Messiah. And he kept making that point. And again, it's just straightforward and it's simple. And that's what he would say when he would go to the synagogues. And Paul and his preaching, we've already seen it in Acts, we'll continue to see it. It causes two reactions, right? Two big general reactions. What happens when Paul preaches? 
he has people receive his message. And he has people not receive his message. And when I was with the Voice of the Martyrs, I researched, uh, because I would talk about persecution a lot around the country, and it was like, what does persecution actually mean? And so I researched the, the word origin, and really persecution comes from the word to pursue. And we're going to see that here, that he is going to be pursued, and they're going to be hostile. And so he not only reasoned with them from the scriptures, he proved from the scriptures that Jesus was Messiah. Now, do you catch that? What scriptures did he use? Well, the New Testament had not been completed. So that means that he was able to take his Old Testament, his Hebrew Bible, and he was able to prove from the Hebrew Bible that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Messiah would have to suffer. So I think that's pretty amazing because I bet, I mean, just honestly, if I said, take out your Bibles right now for 30 minutes, see if you can figure out how to prove Jesus was the Messiah from the Old Testament, that it might be a bit of a challenge, depending on who you are. So anyway, that's what he would do. And so now let's watch the reaction in verse 4. And some of them, the Jews, were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas. It's kind of like he must have had some Bible studies beyond just the synagogue time, and they started coming out to those studies and to that time together as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Um, the devout Greeks would be people who were Gentile in origin, but they were interested in Judaism and they were interested in God. They would not be classified as what we would say Christian. They had not come to that understanding about Jesus. But a lot of times we focus on the negative. Take a look at the positive here. There's a great many of them that do this, and not a few, which is uh, Luke's way of saying uh, quite a few, leading women. Now, some people say, well, they were married to leading men, and they were called leading women, but I will tell you one of the themes in Acts here is there are quite a few women of position and influence who responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's awesome. And I think that still continues today, because you scratch most people, and they will say, it's the women that keep the church going. Because why? The men are somewhere else. And we could go on and on about that, but I think I've mentioned it. I'll say this. I'll drop this bomb and I'll move on. I think women, or men, pardon me, perceive themselves as in competition with God. God is a competitor to the man. That's my theory. But anyway, I'll move on. I'll drop that and move on. So a lot of the women get involved. But notice the Jews, the contrast, they were jealous, and they were taking some wicked men of the rabble. Uh, these are also called, it's, it's kind of funny, but they're called market people. One of the translators said uh, these are lowlifes. Now, I kind of hate to throw that phrase out there. It's kind of not fair to the lowlifes. But, uh, but basically, these are the kind of people that probably don't have ambition. They are probably addicted. They're all this kind of thing. They're not happy. They're whatever they are. And they're easy to stir into a riot or something that's violent. Their amygdalas are constantly being inflamed. If you ever studied the amygdala hijack in the mind, basically they can be stirred up easily. They're not people with emotional intelligence. They're not rational. They're not calm. They can be stirred up. And so the Jews take some of them, they form a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attack the house of Jason. 
seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And that crowd is a, a, a kind of a formal public assembly, a group of people who could go to the city authorities and say, we need to do something about this. I notice it's interesting here, this is just kind of a side thing, but it's true. When people really want to stir it up, the really smart people like that will actually get other people stirred up and let them do the dirty work. Terrorism is kind of like that. Terrorism is about the people watching. And you can do something nasty because you've stimulated other people to do something bad. And you're the instigator, and then you step in the background, and they don't know you've done that. And that's what we have here. So they stir up the mob, and it's kind of like the mob has to get somebody, so they go after Jason. And they drag him and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Now, the city authorities was a group of probably five or six men in the community that were the authorities of the city. And they shout, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. False accusations, the same thing they did in Philippi, where basically they're going to accuse the believers. And it doesn't have to be true, right? In the court of public opinion, there is no proof required. Now, how many of you are on Facebook and want to admit it? You are in the court of a public opinion, and your opinion, you can say what you want until Facebook doesn't like it, and then they put you on probation. But that's the world today. We can say that stuff and walk away. And so these people are making accusations that are not proven, and they don't have to be because they just stir people up. And so when they first say to turn the world upside down, that's uh, the way of saying here that uh, they are attempting to overthrow us in turning us upside down. They're causing trouble. They are subverters of our public order. But the second accusation is even more serious because what they're saying here is, when they say acting against the decrees of Caesar, that's sedition. In the Roman Empire, that was the worst crime of all. To go against the Caesar, to, to overthrow the authority of Caesar, to have another king. And so they hear the believers talk about the King Jesus, and they say, see, you want another king. What does this remind you of? exactly what happened to Jesus Christ himself. What was it that made Pilate go across the line and torture Jesus? When they said, you're not a friend of Caesar. If you're not going to support Caesar's cause, you're an enemy of Caesar. Pilate could have lost his job, lost his life. And I find it very interesting, it's like Jesus said. Whatever happens to me, it's going to happen to you, and that's what's happening here. Sometimes the Gentiles raise the concern, sometimes it's the Jews, sometimes they find the disciples innocent, sometimes not. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They accept the slander. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This was not a bribe, probably. They basically, he basically paid bail money. Now, if you'll do, uh, hold your place here, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. I want to show you 1 Thessalonians. Uh, because Paul talks about this in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 
And uh, I know you ladies are going to be studying Thessalonians, and so maybe this will be a little background for you. I'm not trying to steal your thunder here, so forgive me, but um, this will help you understand the context of where it is. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said in verse 6, And you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. We see that here. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's Greece, that's where Athens is. Uh, and they report how you turn from idols, this is verse 9, to serve the living and the true God. What's, what a wonderful phrase. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter 2 picks it up. Um, Though we had already, verse 2, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So in Thessalonians here, Paul is remembering what happened to him on this missionary journey, and he's relating it to the Thessalonians who saw it in front of them. And then um, he says in verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil... We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We don't charge for the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. But wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul refers to this, uh, it was a pretty serious thing, and in 1 Thessalonians he refers to it. Now I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 17. So all that is Thessalonica. Now, we've seen things like this before in Acts 17 verse 10. Because things got so hot in Thessalonica and because Paul's life apparently was in danger, this is one of those cases where they get him out of there. So the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Berea is about 45 miles southwest of Thessalonica, and it was known as a noble town. Why did they send him at night? Because it's covert. They want to get him out of there when nobody can see him go. So you see on the map you got Thessalonica, and then you got Berea. So now we're going to go down to Berea. And the Bereans have become legendary for their response. Because in verse 11, Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, in contrast to the Thessalonians, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. How often do they look at the scriptures? How often do we look at the scriptures? I hope it's daily. And the word for examining is a legal word, which means a legal process where they really looked at the scriptures Paul was using to see if they proved what Paul was saying. And so in verse 12, here's your response. Many of them therefore believed. Hallelujah. With not a few Greek women, again, of high standing as well as men. By the way, those women are referred to in Acts 16 and 17.4. We see, the, in general, women of high standing. So this was not unusual. 
Now the Bereans received Paul, but watch what happens. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It was not the Bereans that made it happen. It was the Thessalonians who got upset and came over to pursue Paul, to persecute Paul. When he was proclaiming the gospel, and the word here means to proclaim the good news, it means to proclaim the gospel. And that's what Paul was doing. So what happens next to Paul? Verse 14, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remain there. So basically the Thessalonians, in their rejection, pushed Paul out of two different cities. And he has to leave. Now Thessalonica is on the sea. Typically when they would go to Athens, they would use the sea route because literally, seriously, that's Mount Olympus there. I think it's 9,000 feet or so in elevation. They would have to go around Mount Olympus one way or the other, and so they would tend to take the sea route. We don't know for sure how Paul went, but um, they sent him off, possibly by boat. Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul's safe escort brought him as far as Athens, which is a couple hundred miles south, southeast of Berea. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So we've seen it before. Paul is pursued. And what that does is it causes the gospel to go forward, the pursuit. So it's one of those things, if you tend to ask people, is there any good to come out of persecution? They know. But the truth is, a lot of times it takes persecution to cause us to spread the gospel. And that's what we see. And I'll tell you from Voice of the Martyrs, we saw that a lot. So now let's get Paul down in Athens. Now, speaking of Athens, I mean, you know this. This is the Parthenon. Um, it was taken on the day that Paul arrived into town, and he's in the background of the picture. Uh, it looks like a couple tourists taking a selfie and all that stuff, but anyway, that's the Parthenon, the famous temple that apparently was just absolutely staggeringly beautiful up on a hill. Uh, Paul is going to end up at the Areopagus, another phrase for that is Mars Hill, because Ares was the god of war, Areopagus, Mars Hill. Now, I don't honestly have a really good picture. I try to show pictures that I have the, the right to show by copyright. So here's a photo with the top of Mars Hill, and here's a photo with the base of Mars Hill. So that was a key place that we're going to see in a moment. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he gets to Athens, he's kind of going around, you know, he's looking around the town, he goes to Starbucks, you know, he hangs out, probably hits McDonald's, goes to the drive-thru, you know, with his chariot. And so he's uh, hanging out in Athens, but on a serious note, his spirit was provoked, and that word means aroused to strong anger on the inside. He despised when he saw the city was full of idols, apparently even more than normal. And in the marketplace, the Agora in Athens, they had a whole corner that was devoted to idols. And they had all sorts of idols. They had all sorts of shapes uh, that they used for the idols. And that was what was so common. And the irony is Athens was the most sophisticated city. It had a reputation for being the city of really smart people and philosophers. What kind of smart people make idols and say, we're going to worship these things we have created? It does not make sense. And so Paul looks at all of this around him. It's kind of like when I walked through our neighborhoods at Halloween. I mean, really, there, I was, yesterday was in the neighborhood, and 
few blocks away, there was a, a yard that had like 100 tombstones and a bunch of other stuff in there. Do people actually went out and bought tombstones to put in their yard? And I'm like, what's wrong with you people? You know, hey, evil spirits, come here. So I guess an antenna for an evil spirit. What do you do? Now, I'm not against the party side of Halloween, and I understand the theological background of All Hallows' Eve, but that's not where we are today. We've just driven it to a place where it's basically Satan's party time. So I'll get off my soapbox. So be real careful what you do. If you come to church in a costume, I get it. I mean, I'm not worried about that. But the other stuff is like, why do we do that? But now I'm starting to preach. So Paul looks at the city the way I look at the neighborhoods that have all this stuff. And you know, the werewolf, when people walk by, he goes, Rawr! and his eyes light up red. And I'm like, why do you do this? So I intentionally walk that street and I pray for the people, for the Holy Spirit to come down on that street and to protect the believers and help them to have an evangelistic opportunity with all this stuff. Amen? Boom! It was like, you put that stuff out in your yard, I'm going to pray for you! So that's what we're doing. So anyway, sorry. So Paul sees this, he's provoked, he's angry. He's really upset, that's what the word means, that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, he goes there first again, with the Jews and the devout persons, and he goes to the marketplace, even though they're the idols, every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. It was a, can I use the word stupid? Stupid environment. Well, first of all, to be a babbler, what the idea meant there, a babbler, is it means seed picker. What they were saying is that like a bird, you go around picking up different seeds of information, but you don't really understand them, you can't put them together. So you talk big, you're proud, but basically you don't know what you're talking about. That's what these people were saying. When they say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, that's like, this is strange stuff. We're hearing stranger things here. The Epicurean and Stoic, by the way, see if this rings a bell with anyone you can think of as far as a group. Epicurean came from Epicurus. They were agnostic. They didn't really believe in God. They were secular. There's no God. There's no pain and death. Which is convenient if you can just put it all aside and say we don't have to deal with pain. It doesn't exist. But the problem is it does. They believed in attaining pleasure, enduring evil, and their highest goal was to have a pleasant and smooth life. To have it made, in our terms, and to retire pleasant and smooth and no trouble. Stoics, on the other hand, came from Zeno. They were pantheists. They believed there was a God in everything. And we were, they would say, we are united with the divine. We're united with each other. We all are in harmony together. They believed in world, the world state. It's kind of the world is united. They believed in reason and self-sufficiency, obedience, order. I suspect that they were frugal. They followed the protocol. 
They were cool and calm and proud. And what it reminded me of, I mean, to be honest, um, y'all know by now I love the military and the people in it. That's kind of my background from my babyhood. But there are plenty of military officers who are trained well to be orderly, in control, in command, who deny the existence of God and don't live for him, right? And we see that, and we see it on our military bases, and if you've been involved in Officers Christian Fellowship, you know what I'm talking about. And that's the kind of group that strikes me. It's like these people had it together. They were orderly. They may have been perfectionistic. They tend to do the job well. But they were lost. And this is the group, this combined group that Paul was speaking to. And again, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he's stirring it up, and in verse 19, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, next to the Parthenon. This is probably not an arrest. They may have been just seeking the opinion of the Areopagus, which was a council. The Areopagus tried crimes, but they also determined uh, what civil life should be. They regulated education and civil life and behavior, and so Paul is taken before these, this group. And they say to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Greeks did not believe in resurrection. That was a foreign concept to them, part upon. And Paul is preaching a resurrection. So this is new to them, and they want to know what it means. And then in verse 21, this classic statement, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And believe me, Luke in this is giving it to them with a sharp knife. They spent their time doing nothing except being stimulated by new thoughts, seeking constant stimulation, addicted to it. Their ears were tickled, but without commitment. Because you can have your ears tickled by something interesting and make no commitment to it whatsoever. And it's a waste of time. And Luke, if you think about it, is saying to them, you are the real seed pickers. You waste your time gathering all this data, and it means nothing. I found an interesting thing. Um, you know that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I don't know if you watched it enough, but did you ever see a time when the fifth grader did not win? Usually a fifth grader won, right? Fifth grade, from what I've seen, is the ideal time of hunger for learning with children. So I say that to say that I really hate to offend all of us, but I'm going to. Did you know that a goldfish has a longer attention span than you do? So in 2018, there was this report, the average human attention span is now shorter than a goldfish's. Seriously, a recent study found that the average human attention span has fallen from 12 seconds in the year 2000. What happened around the year 2000? Well, you got the internet and you got smartphones not long after that. So it's fallen from 12 seconds in 2000 to eight seconds today. In comparison, scientists believe that the goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. Are you smarter than a goldfish? Not necessarily. 
So Paul tweaks them with the idea of something new, the resurrection, but he doesn't drop a bomb on them. He's very gracious. In fact, somebody said, it's not like Paul in this sermon. He's so gracious. You know, he usually hits them harder, but uh, he does. And then you'll see next week when he hits them with the gospel, uh, the resurrection, that's when actually they shut down his sermon. Now I'm going to finish with this this morning, and I'm really excited to share this with you, and I hope it will have uh, the impact intended on you. I went through this passage, and I thought... Who are the different people we see here, and how does that relate to today? And at first I thought, you know, we could do some kind of framework on uh, worldviews, and I thought, no, I don't want to make it abstract. I want to take this passage, think about these people, and connect it with the middle space you're going into. So on the left-hand side, we have spiritual leaders here, like Paul and his buddies. We have the retinue, the people that go with him on the travels, you know, Silas and Timothy. We have followers, people who come to follow them and follow Christ. We have supporters. Those are the people who go even further than following. They actually support and underwrite his ministry. And we even have protectors. There are some people there in the passage who protected Paul, got him to safety, which, by the way, one of our unheralded ministries at our church is our security team. Uh, thank you guys are on security team for what you do. And I consider it a very important ministry of FRAC, and they do it without fanfare. So if you're on the security team, we can't see you because you're secure. But thank you for, thank you for all you do. I, I don't take it for granted, and I know how much it means, and we appreciate that. There's another group, and I put them in green because they are fertile soil. And we see a lot of these people here in this passage. We see the hungry. We see hunger at different levels, people that are down and out, people that are high stature, women of high uh, nobility. We see it all over the place. We see it with the Bereans, all social levels. We see the devout people who are searching, people who are probably not believers at the time, but they're devout. They know there's a God. They want to honor him, but they don't know enough about him. We see the authorities and leaders. Some of the uh, leaders in the book of Acts actually come to Christ. They're open to the conversation, and I've seen that around the world, and I think that's phenomenal. Uh, we see people of high standing, like the women and like others, and a lot of them are hungry. We see people who are searching, and we see the wounded. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about the Samaritan woman and how emotionally wounded she would have been, and abused, I am sure. The world is full of wounded people, and I submit to you that we would not have a society as addicted to prescription medications and non-prescription drugs if we were a healthy society. There are wounds all over our society and the disruption of our families and our homes and the lack of fathers in the home has caused untold devastation. What's the one thing that would fix America, or I hate to say fix America, that's, but that would improve things? Get the fathers to Christ and in the home leading their children and loving their children because the women are already there. So we have a wounded culture, but they did then as well. Now in the gray, gray being more non-committal, we have the shallow. And I think in Acts 17, there are a lot of shallow people. We have the orderly. Those are people that have their life together in every area except where it mattered the most. 
We have the comfortable. They've got a comfortable living. They want to just be cool, make sure everything's fine. I think that's more of the Epicurean types. They enjoy their lives. We know people like this. They have a wonderful life. They're just not focused on Jesus Christ. And it will come to a slamming halt the day they die. We have the passive. I think we see that here in the passage. We have people like, eh, I really don't care. I'm apathetic. I can't understand it anyway, so I'll just let it ride. I see that a lot, you know, on the Internet with message boards. You'll see people who are like, you know, just clearly, I see the corruption in ministry. I don't want any part of it. Well, what are you choosing? Well, nothing. Not a good way to live your life. And then finally we see the stimulated, the people that have to have constant stimulation. And then on the darker side, we have the dismissive. That's clearly in the past. These are the people that mock people of faith. There's an incredible amount of condescension in our world today. And I would encourage you, if you're on social media, you do what you want. But I would ask this, that you think very carefully before you post a negative post. I see a lot of posts that are very condescending generation to generation. Older people posting pictures of younger people who look metrosexual, if we can say that. Uh, and making fun of them, and I see it going the other way, like somebody the other day I saw, they said, you know, when you're over 70, you shouldn't be leading anything anyway. And I'm like, I have more, I think, wisdom and more creativity at my age, not quite 70, but not far away, than I've ever had, and you're telling me you're going to put me out to pasture. Incredible lack of respect, but it goes in all directions. If you make your habit condescension toward others, you're going to have a really difficult time leading anyone to Jesus Christ. The agitators who would stir other people up, the hostile, these are people who are against you but will actually attack you and then take it to the extreme of the violent. Uh, interesting studies are coming out about the agitators in our society the last couple of years and how no surprise, they type out as narcissistic. Of course they do. Some people can't just have a discussion with you. They've got to make it violent. And this is our world, and this is our middle space. Now, on the right here, the people that are hostile, I think you may not be able to reach them right now, but what you can do is what? Pray for them that God would soften their hearts. And someday you could have a conversation with them if you take them away from the crowd and you talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. That's the secret. But if they're on stage, you're not going to have much luck. The hard ones are the, the ones in the gray, the third thing there. Um, sorry, that red's hard to see. I'm sorry about that. Um, but the ones in gray, those are tough because basically they're happy with their lives. They don't want to change. But in the green, there are a lot of people out there, and I think we have to, I'm going to say this and probably wind it down. Um, just because somebody is wounded and comes in with a lot of spikes or other kind of things, crazy hair, whatever it is, does not mean that he or she is hostile. It could mean that that person is just wounded and needs somebody to love him or her. And I think this is where God has uniquely prepared frack. Because I think you can provide a stable environment for someone, a loving environment, and an environment where they can be taken to the Word of God and discipled. And so I want you to think about that.
that maybe God has uniquely created you, I think he has, to minister to the wounded. And I'm excited to see what's going to happen because I think that's going to happen. So I love you. God bless you. You rock. And for those of you who think a preacher should yell at you and give fire and brimstone, I'll give you your money back today because I'm going to end on an encouraging note. You guys rock. Amen? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us this message. Um, watching Paul interact with the different cultures, I know it drove him crazy, just like it drives us crazy, but yet you touched him to share the gospel boldly and bravely and to continue to love even though he was being beaten and harmed. We need to take note of that. We need to live likewise, and we need to give you the glory. And Father, I do pray boldly that you would bring the people to us who need to hear your word. I pray, Father, that you'd bring in the wounded because if they're not wounded, they may have figured it out already. Bring in the wounded. Help us to love them and help us to keep serving you and honoring you to the glory of Jesus.